Inclusively, and this is the Leading Inclusively podcast. I'm here with Dr. Moshe Engelberg, who is a teacher at heart for sure. He's the CEO and founder of ResearchWorks. He inspires businesses worldwide to be their best by thinking differently, acting courageously, and leading with love. Moshe's work is deeply rooted in behavioral science, diverse wisdom traditions, and three decades of consulting with world-class organizations. His extensive academic credentials include a PhD in communication from Stanford University. Moshe, it's so great to have you here today. Thanks, Denise. Good to be here with you. And we, we, as we all know, there's a tremendous connection between love and inclusion. So you're a very logical person to be on this particular podcast. I had the the luxury of being able to read your book. So I, I feel like I know you, mm-hmm. even though this is the first time that we're actually meeting. Yes. Um, so I have so many questions to ask you, uh, if you'll indulge me. And uh, the first, um, I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit about your $20 bill story. <laughs> would you mind sharing that with them? Yeah, I still think of that. It blows me away every time. I'm walking on the beach at La Jolla Shores about 12 miles north of where we are right now. And it's a stretch of beach I've walked on literally thousands of times. I've lived in San Diego quite a while. And I'm telling my cousin Ginger, I'm updating her about progress on this book. And she's asking me, well, how do you stay motivated? And in general, how do writers and artists keep, keep the momentum? And I told her what I love to do is when someone tells me they're writing a book or making an album or starting some new endeavor, I'll immediately give them a $20 bill. And every single time they are shocked, that they're, they're just dumbfounded and look at me like, oh my God, how did, how did this happen? This means it's real. This album is real. This book is real. So it's a very inexpensive way to generate a big impact and it fills me up as well. So I'm telling her this story about the $20 bill and we're walking on the beach and I glimpse out of the corner of my eye some money on the beach about 10, 15 yards ahead. I'm not really connecting it with this story. I just sort of notice it. And then I think, well, the people in front of us will probably pick up whatever it is. And I'm continuing with this story. The people in front of us walk right by the bill. I walk up to it, and it's a $20 bill at the edge of the sea, inches from the water. And I'm thinking, how does this happen? So I take it as a message from the universe. I call this part of the book, the universe, my first customer. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And and by the way, we should probably tell people what the title of your book yeah. is, which is the, the Amari Wave. And uh, I, I speak fluent Italian. So when I first saw this, I thought, oh my gosh, this book has a typo because in <laughs> Italian it's amore. Right. But I understand that it is um, uh, Latin for love. Yes. And, um, and that you have always felt fairly strongly that love should be at the core of all of our interactions, including our business interactions. Is that right? It's mostly right. Okay. What happened is in the latter part, I've been doing consulting with a lot of large organizations and some small ones for, for, as you said, going on three decades. And it, it became more apparent the more I did the work that there was some critical ingredient missing. And it eventually it, it clicked where that ingredient is love. So I've, I've been practicing that in other areas of my life. In business, originally I would call it uh, being customer-centered, customer intimacy, and then gradually moved to let's call it what it is. It's love, and it belongs in business. 
It's interesting because I, I used to be uncomfortable with that word in a business setting. I just thought, you know, love is for family, love is for your spouse or your significant other. Um, and, and I, and I just thought, well, it doesn't really belong in a business setting. And I had a similar experience in that the more work I do, uh, related to inclusion, the more I realize it really is about that. It's about, um, belonging. It's about feeling good about your environment. It's about feeling invested in the people around you. So I know to some love in a business context is going to seem, you know, a little maybe even out of place or too intimate, but um, I really do love uh, from your book, the, the area of the book where you ask us to imagine, and I'm just going to name some of the things that yes. you say and, and then ask you to just uh, add to those or extrapolate any way you like. But for example, you say, imagine a business world where love is the driving force. Imagine the biz, uh, that businesses know they exist to provide value to society. Imagine that businesses are purpose-driven and committed to lasting relationships. I mean, when you think uh, when you think of it in that context, then the word love actually does fit quite nicely, doesn't it? It does. It does. I think I think it's an appropriate word for the usage and for the context of business. And two two things to add to that. One is I want it to be rigorous about defining love. One of the problems we could run into is Love, there used to be a song my parents would sing when I was a kid. Love is a many-splendored thing. So it means many things to many people. The rigor is, is a clear definition that people can operationalize. And to me, love is simply energy that uplifts and connects. So nothing romantic about it. It's an energy that we feel. For example, when I walk into Trader Joe's, I feel a little bit uplifted. I'm happy to be here. And I feel a sense of connection. Yeah, this is kind of my, my kind of place. I don't feel that when I walk into other supermarkets like Vons or Alps. It's not bad. It's just not uplifting. And life is too short, in my view, to live without that upliftingness and that connection whenever possible. And in business, we can create that opportunity for people again and again. The other note I'll add is that I recognize that even with all that, it will be uncomfortable for some people to use the word love in business. And we have to be careful with the Me Too movement and so on to be appropriate. And so that's why we call this book the Amare Wave. Amare, as you said, is love in Latin. So that people can, and, and, and the many I've talked to, seem more comfortable. Yeah, we're, we're an Amare company, rather than saying we're a love-based company. Mm -hmm. So it just lightens it somehow, and, um, and it brings in a little bit of Latin. So that lets people recognize the, that, that love is appropriate without getting hung up on the word. I don't care what word people use. Trader Joe's doesn't use the word love particularly. Southwest Airlines does. Some do, some don't. But the point is to do the work in this way and conceive of the business in this way and not get hung up on the terminology. I really like your definition as, uh, you know, being uh, uplifting and connection. You're not saying in love anyway. Um, you're saying love. Yes. Um, I really like that. Um, one of the things that uh, that I read in the book is that you actually wrote the book to alleviate suffering in business. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yes. This comes from, again, consulting experiences. I'm thinking of one large health technology company, a, a global organization, and we worked with them for years and at different levels in the organization. And there was just this sense 
in some of their business units of deep unhappiness and and a feeling of yeah, I'm going into work I'm, but I can't give my best because there's all this infighting or there's a sense of antagonism with respect to customers and people were suffering so that coupled with my own spiritual path and recognizing as the Buddha says it's all about reducing suffering and fundamentally we're all human beings and we don't check our humanity when we walk into work so from both aspects ultimately what this is about in plain human language is reducing suffering yeah I love that and and I think we would say that one of the biggest sources of happiness at work um, is is inclusion and that inclusion is is very much aligned with with what you just spoke about. There's a tremendous amount of suffering associated with not feeling included or not feeling that you belong. And there's also um, a tremendous lack of investment that that we as individual humans have in our workplaces when we feel that we don't belong. Um, one of the things that 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 you and I have in common, uh, and that um, the Amari Way and Lead Inclusively have in common is um, that when when we are interacting in, in the manner that you just described, we actually end up with more um, of the things in life that create business results, business impact, business wealth, uh, and in particular, innovation. Tell me what you think about the connection between the, the Amari way and innovation. Well, I see innovation as happening when people feel respected, when people feel included, when people can be themselves, their authentic selves. So the the practices of the Amari way are ABC, authenticity, belonging, and collaboration. And all those lend themselves to innovation. Innovation is about being authentic and exploring different approaches and feeling safe doing it. So authenticity builds trust. Trust enables innovation. We work with a number of organizations that have innovation centers, innovation labs, and some do it well. And there is a foundation of trust. And others, it's kind of empty words. It's more innovation theater, which is sad to see. It's kind of showboating in all the right places and being in the CEO's office at the right times and giving talks at the right conferences. But nothing of substance happens because there's not trust and there's not authentic investment. And innovation comes from that sense of teamwork, collaboration, belonging, and so on. Uh, in particular, there's, um, and I refer to this in the, in the book, the idea of open innovation models. Procter & Gamble was a leading proponent of that, where up to 50% of, of their new ideas came from the outside. So underneath it is the, is the humility that says, we as a company don't know everything. We have our expertise. Our customers know things, other stakeholders know things, let's invite them in and we can innovate better. And the whole idea of agile, which is kind of a response to, or a counter narrative to the idea of command and control, which a lot of large organizations practice. It's hard to be inclusive in a command and control culture. If you tell people, okay, you have to include everybody, that doesn't fly, it's not authentic and, and there needs to be a, a, a bottom up approach to it as well. And, and then the third the third discipline I'd say that ties into innovation thinking that links with the Amari Wave is the whole idea of design thinking. I had the good fortune to study a million years ago with Don, Don Norman. He's at UCSD now, was a professor of psychology there back in the 
70s, 80s, and he stayed with him. And he, he's, a, he's a real strong leader in this area. And we talked about this book, and he was fascinated with the idea of adding the ingredient of love explicitly to design thinking. So all these methodologies uh, have at their core respecting other points of view, and we don't know it all. So I think there's a very strong link between innovation, inclusiveness, and the idea of love and business, or the Amari way. And just uh, just two points I, I wanted to connect with um, uh, on that. One, one is we, we have something called an inclusion innovation lab, mm. and we run we, we divide the group into two uh, two groups. One is basically pra- practicing the three R's of inclusion, the lead inclusively three R's of inclusion, and the other is not. And um, what happens is the the group that is practicing inclusion, everything just accelerates. The energy is high. The yes. the they go through. We actually use the Stanford D School, you know, design thinking mm-hmm. as a premise for that. They actually go through all the different steps. They're cu- they're customer centric and focused on the on the product. And so I'm a hundred percent in alignment uh, with with that. The other thing I wanted to say because I thought this was an excellent point that you just made is that. When there is alignment between the internal brand and the external brand, um, and, and what I mean by that is, let's say the external brand is one of great, great uh, inclusion, and the internal brand backs that up. Everything that's happening inside is, in fact, what the public sees. Mm-hmm. You get this, again, uh, low, low attrition, high employee engagement, et cetera. When it doesn't align, let's say you've done some sort of pay for play and gotten some great diversity award, but in reality, there is no diversity, let alone inclusion, in the organization itself. You actually that that lack of alignment leads to so many problems, from lack of employee engagement to increased attrition to glass door scores that would scare you. Yes. So so uh, you're one hundred percent right on, Moshe. I noticed that you are a fan of Cahill Gibran, as I am. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is "Work is love made visible." Do you want to talk just a little bit about that? Sure, happy to. And that's also as as you know as a Participant Marshall Goldsmith's uh, 100 coaches. I forgot we have that that love of Marshall. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we have that in communal. And that's the title of the book that he and Sarah and Francis wrote, Work is Love Made Visible, that just came out, I think, last year. Um, I love Francis, too. Yes. She's amazing. Yes, yes. So that has to do with what work is about, why we work. And underneath that is the idea that no business exists to make money. None. And I can already hear people arguing, saying, what are you talking about? And folding their arms and saying, forget this. I don't. But I invite people to just sit with that idea for a minute. And my belief, my strong belief, is that business as an enterprise exists to make people's lives better, provide value to society. And a byproduct, a critically important byproduct, is making money. Hopefully a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of making a lot of money. (laughs) I think we all are. Yes, yes. So it's not about writing off profit or money or calling it a bad thing. It's saying it's a good thing. It enables so much good to happen. But it's not our purpose. And when we lose sight of that and think our our work exists to make money, then we get off purpose and off track. We lose our motivation. You talk about engagement scores before engagement falls. We, we start wondering, why am I doing this? Where's the meaning in my life? So that quote uh, speaks to that about what work is. Tell me 
what you mean by, um, you know, business as war versus business as love. Isn't that a little bit extreme? It is extreme and it's real, unfortunately. So imagine a continuum. Business is war is on one end, business is love on the other end. And then there's the middle where it's kind of in between, typically more transactional than not. The business as war idea came from recognizing in a lot of companies and a lot of highly successful companies, there's this warlike mentality. And it's it's it comes across in the language, a a more violent, predatory like language. We're going to crush our competition. We're going to capture market share. If you think about capturing market share, capturing customers, and we talk about it every day, and I was as guilty as anyone. I tell clients in consulting proposals, we'll help you, we'll help you capture, capture more share and so on. So it, it's, it's so pervasive, we don't even see it. It's like a fish in water. It doesn't know it's in water. It just is. So we don't see that paradigm because it's the dominant paradigm, and therefore we don't question it. And what happens is that way of thinking causes more, it's, it creates more of a fighting energy. Let's do whatever it takes to crush competition, to capture market share. When I first started in my career and I was debating, I'd finished my PhD at Stanford and was deciding, do I want to go into academia or go into consulting? I ended up doing, starting my own firm and doing a lot of teaching on the side. And I was looking at some of the large management consulting firms at the time, McKinsey, um, uh, BCG and some others and the language and this was a few decades ago but the language then was there's two kinds of people we hire hunters and skinners hunters bring in the clients skinners do the work and I was in my late 20s at the time and even then I thought that is I'll watch my language horrendous <laughs> yeah 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 it's scary yeah it, it is yeah and, and it's accepted as well, it's business. Mm-hmm. There's a Godfather quote. Um, the Godfather is saying, don't take it personally, Sonny. It's all business. Mm-hmm. I just did a post on this last week and said, the Godfather was wrong because it's all personal. Why? Because we're people. And again, we don't check our humanity when we patronize a, an organization, give them our business, or when we're working or leading an organization. So let, let me let me ask you, how am I going to convince our clients and our listeners that the, the Amari way is actually going to make them more money? Well, there's a fair amount of research cited in the book that shows a number of case studies. Some of the organizations we mentioned, Trader Joe's, Costco, USAA, and several others that make a whole lot more money than their competitors. And then more than that, there's a lot of secondary re- research cited, including from Firms of Endearment by Raj Sisodia and Company, where they looked at 80-something companies and found that their return was 8x compared to the Standard & Poor's average over 10 years. This I, I want to tell you just anecdotally yes. that I just got back from Peru uh-huh. from a leadership retreat that was designed by Raj Sisoda and Nalima Bhatt. They, they authored Shakti Leadership together. Yes. So they took a whole bunch of us to Peru to have this leadership um, retreat, you know, with mindfulness. And it was just an incredible experience. That's just a little aside, but I had to tell you because it, you're in this sacred spot. And if you don't understand the connection between love and leadership at that point, you're just never going to understand it. <laughs> Beautiful. Mm. Love it. Yeah. Love it. So there's a fair amount of evidence that love works to make money. 
and companies that do that, everything else being equal, those companies will make more money. Now, that does not mean that there's the Beatles song, Love is All You Need. That's not true either, at least in business. Right. So you need a good business model, the right value proposition, good products and services at reasonable prices, good people, sufficient capital, all the basics that make a business effective. So love is not a panacea that precludes a need for these basics. And companies that embrace it and practice the principles, what I call the Mari Way principles, do better. Let me ask you a question, um, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I, what, what is the hardwiring that lets us lose our humanity in business? And I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable and just use myself as an example. I teach inclusion. I teach that if we don't empower uh, our teams uh, rather than command and control, that we lose out on the best of them. I teach that we have to treat each other with respect regardless of what power, for example, I, uh, you know, I'm at the top of my organization. I arguably have the most power. Um, but I, I know that I need to interact respectfully, um, and, and with kindness, uh, and humanity, uh, or I'm not going to get the kind of fellowship that I need and cooperation that I need to be successful. So if, if, I, if I start with the premise that I am a good person, that I know about this work, that I am trying to be as mindful as possible, what is the hardwiring that may, may get in my way to make that happen every day, no matter what the circumstances? Well, there, there's several aspects to it. The, the core of it is our ability to dehumanize others. So we forget we're dealing with people. For example, if we're wanting to, quote unquote, crush competitors, we're, we sometimes forget those are people, too, with essentially the same goals and values. But at least in that case, they're competitors, right? They're arguably on the, on the let's just call them on the opposite side of the street. But what about within our own organizations? Well, within our own organizations, if we hyper-focus, for example, on money or numbers. Or results. Or results. In any way. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, and I'll get into a moment about the whole idea of, about being attached to results and, and what that does to us. But the dehumanization occurs, for example, if we treat customers simply as data points mm-hmm. and we leave out the personas and the personification. It's easy to eliminate data points. It's you, you know, you just I, – I, I apologize for interrupting you, but I just have to tell you this is – my mind is going in a million directions. <laughs> I see that. I had a, a loved one um, just just recently – in the hospital, and they kept trying to put him in another facility, whether it was, you know, long-term care or um, uh, at one point another hospital and at another point home when it was quite obvious that that he needed the medical care and shouldn't have been discharged. And finally, in conjunction with the ombudsman, our family realized that they were trying to get him him out the patient out so that he would not be on their stats on their mort- mortality stats okay so mm. what you just said just hit me like a ton of bricks because that is the extreme example right of a human being being a number or the statistics driving the the behavior exactly that's a that's a powerful and painful example denise and it happens all the time. Health is the space, the business of health is a space I've been in most of my career and where my firm did most, most work. And sadly, love is really missing in that industry. We worked, I'm thinking of um, 
some companies that we've worked with that make medical equipment that essentially go to doctors and hospitals to provide better care. And I was asking one of the new senior executives what he was envisioning, and he was telling me about um, taking advantage of opportunities and looking for openings in the market and so on. And he talked for a couple minutes, and afterwards I said, you know, you never once mentioned the word patient or health. And he said, oh, yeah, well, well, I, I meant it. It's in there. But that's, that's an example of dehumanizing and losing a sense of purpose. It's just about the numbers. And the other, the other example, this, the um, attachment thing, I have a whole chapter on obstacles to success, and one of them is this idea of attachment. And I'll tell you, this was, for, in my career, one of the biggest challenges. And it comes from an ancient scripture called the Bhagavad Gita. It's a couple thousand years old. And it's a conversation between a, a warrior named Arjuna who's about to go to battle and his chariot driver named Krishna, who happens to be what's considered the deity Krishna, only Arjuna doesn't know. And there, it's a back and forth conversation. It's a book that I hope will succeed Art of War to be front and center on executives' bookshelves. They both have a place. This one, I think, has a much more powerful message for business. Tell me why. Because it's about the reality that it's, it's us as human beings and our egos and our minds and our recognition of how we fit into the bigger system and the greater good and where we truly have power and where we don't have power. And so I, and The Art of War is a fascinating book and there's a lot of good and useful strategy and information there, but it's, it's, it's in the context of conquest. So how does the how does the con the concept of attachment play into this just in a little bit more detail that we get we get essentially obsessed with the results. So for example, if I'm at a company and I'm saying we and I instruct my people we need to hit these numbers or we're not going to make it or or there's no bonuses or whatever. Then everyone's focus is on hitting their numbers, it's not in doing the work. So there's two kinds of attachment. This is what monks and aesthetics and gurus have found out over centuries and centuries that as human beings we're not wired to not care about things so so we we have an idea of an attachment but there's two kinds stephen cope wrote about this beautifully in a book about the bhagavad-gita and one kind of attachment is based on a a desire that's that's grasping and i have to have this if i don't have that everything's and it's as I'm saying this, I'm tightening my body. It's, it's, there's a desperation. And so all my energy goes into that and not into the work. Every athlete knows about the idea of being in the zone. When you're in the zone, you're doing the work and you're not focused on, am I going to win the game or not? It's doing the work. So the kind of attachment that is healthier, the kind of desire that creates a healthy attachment is more aspirational. I want that to be. And if it comes to fruition, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. One of the quotes from the Bhagavad Gita is, it's very hard for us in the West, is be the same in success and defeat. So can you imagine a CEO adopting that? It's hard to say yes to that, but how powerful would it be if they recognize that 
it's all temporary. We all do our best, and what happens, happens. You know what you're making me realize too um, is it's not about it's not just about the attachment to money. So, for example, in our organization, we are a purpose driven organization for sure. But if if I'm honest with myself, I can you know I can see that I'm driving my people pretty hard on the basis that I really don't want to leave this earth until I feel that. I have had an impact on the ability to change behavior. In other words, to create culture transformation at scale um, along the lines of, of inclusion in particular. And so I, I have this intense energy as if it's a race against time. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that as long as I realize that the people that I'm talking to in my organization about this, the deadlines that I'm setting, the way I'm driving them to make this happen better be with a tremendous amount of appreciation and thoughtfulness. And I better be creating urgent energy, but not negative energy by the intensity of what I am experiencing. Yeah. That's an awareness that makes a powerful leader right there. If I can pull it off, you know, it's because the awareness is half of it. Now, yes. now I have to translate that. I mean, you, you've helped me to think about that, which is awesome. And I, I, I am very open and I'm the kind of person that is willing to be vulnerable, but now I have to translate that to action because, and, and I'll just, um, I'll just align this with when we first started doing this work, we thought that by raising awareness, for example, related to unconscious bias, we were going to solve all these problems. Everyone was going to be aware, right? And and then everything was going to be fine. But what we realized is that is not all at all the case. Um, that in some cases it's even backfired, and the reason is that we raised the level of awareness, but we did not give managers and leaders uh, the tools to understand what inclusive behaviors were, what they look like in the workplace, how to practice them, etc. So what? can I do now that I've had this awareness, which I think is awesome, what, what's the next step? What can I do to keep those behaviors top of mind every time I interact with my staff? Well, there's a few things you can do. One is in, in the spirit of inclusiveness and transparency, you can share this insight with your staff and invite them to give you feedback if you slip. That sounds like Marshall, like triggers. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the Brene Brown vulnerability right. aspect of it's it's so we're all in this together. Call me on it respectfully, but point that out. The other is to put reminders in front of you at the points where you're likely to make other decisions. Okay, this is this is fascinating. Um, I had a conversation um, recently uh, where so my staff knows me so well at this point <laughs> that. If they feel that energy, they, they will most likely, I would say in most situations, they will ignore it because they know me and they know my heart is in the right place. If they can't, then they will say something sort of indirect. And if that doesn't work, then they will directly, in a respectful way, call me out on it. Um, and that works quite well with my internal staff because, as I say, they know me very well. It also, I have no issues at all, of course, with clients because that boundary is so clear. Even if you, as a professional, are super upset at a client or uh, 
ang- even angry, you're still, if you're a professional, you're going to be able to, to hold it together and really watch every word that's coming out of your mouth. Where I find the greatest vulnerability uh, is with vendors because at, vendors don't necessarily know me well. They don't know my ethos. They don't know who I am as a human being or as a, as a leader on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're not close enough to me for me to be vulnerable with them. So, so what comes out is, you know, if you're feeling this urgent energy or if you have anxiety over a particular result, you have, you as a leader, I, in this circumstance have the power I'm paying them. They're my vendor. And so that boundary is not going to be as clear. And so, um, that's, that's my area of weakness, you know, in terms of Amari. And that's where I have to put my energy. I have to be all the more mindful at that particular, with those relationships, I should say, uh, that I'm vulnerable because of that power imbalance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and it makes sense that that's a difficulty uh, because it's a, you're the one in charge and these vendors are, are ostensibly here to serve you. So how do you manage the relationship? I guess I, I think of um, I'm looking at your bookshelf. You have conscious capitalism up there. That, I sure do. That and other other Amare like philosophies and disciplines point to the importance of multiple stakeholders. So can we be the same with all our stakeholders? And are you willing to let go of vendors that might be cheaper if they're not aligned with your values, or are you going to compromise and say? I'm going to let put my values aside because it'll save me five thousand dollars a month or five hundred thousand dollars a month, whatever the amount is. That's a conscious choice, and 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 you might choose that, and it's not bad. It's just being aware of it, and not pretending it's otherwise. So some of this, I think, one of the most valuable things you can do in this context is to label it. Then it becomes it. it it's it's a thing that you're working towards. Yeah. It's an actual you're you're identifying it. You're bringing it to the surface, and you're creating some sort of personal accountability or even team accountability for what's happening. Yes. Okay. And sometimes labeling it with kind of a silly word lightens it a little bit. Like what? Give me an example. And how would you use that? Uh, you might. Well, if this is about misalignment, mm-hmm. uh, what might you call it? Um, you might call it. Incoming storm, okay, or or something like that. And what would happen? Would your team say say that that word or phrase, and that would remind you that the behavior is happening? It, your team would say you would say it to yourself. You would have visual reminders, of it, and there could be visual ones. It could be words. There's lots of ways to remind you. But when that thing that you've labeled to incoming storm happens, that triggers a set of responses that, that let you mediate it and make a conscious decision. Am I going to go there or am I going to correct it? I love this. I, I, re- I think that this, this takes um, – y- the information that you have is already very valuable, but taking it from a strategic point of view down to tactics to me is – it's usable. I mean, I can use this tomorrow. Yes. Uh, so I am going to keep this book right there – by my desk, but I think I might also Google something like, you know, 
uh, incoming storm or no, <laughs> no, just a storm or something and laminate it or stick it on my computer or, um, or give it as a gift to each of my uh, employees so that when we're on a virt- virtual call, if I'm not doing if I'm not showing up the way I should be showing up, have them hold up this laminated storm thing and let that be the sign that, uh, that I need to be more mindful about my interactions. Exactly. All right. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Well, I love this. Um, and as our listeners know, this is the Leading Inclusively podcast. I'm Denise Hummel, the CEO and founder of Lead Inclusively. And I'm here with Moshe Engelberg, the author of Amari Wave, a colleague and a friend in San Diego, and I have a feeling I'm going to be spending a lot more time with him. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Moshe, really for nice being here. Really nice to be with you and your listeners, Denise. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. My name is Denise Hummel, and that was my guest, Moshe Engelberg, and this is the Leading Inclusively podcast series. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please feel free to leave us a rating and review, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future interviews. Thank you all again for joining and hope to see you all next time. Take care, everyone.